Well, it is always good uh, to, for me to be here. Um, you guys are such a blessing to me personally. I'm going to assume that not everybody in this room knows who I am. I'm Todd Erickson, one of the pastors here on staff. I kind of wear two main hats these days. I, uh, I work primarily with young adults and young couples um, and really enjoy that. And then also I, I spend a lot of time helping out and working with the restoration and peacemaking ministry here at Second, which also is, uh, is very enjoyable, um, sometimes hard work, but I, it's really awesome to see God do what He does when He brings people together who, um, who've been dealing with conflict. So I really enjoy that. also wanted to just encourage you, uh, I know Sandy mentioned this new Amen Core that we're doing um, that's going on with the young adult men, and uh, I think we have about 40 young adult men who... Uh, who watch this by video sometime during the week. They get a special link to go in and see it, have the notebook and everything. And then they're meeting in uh, small groups with mentors and going over this stuff together as they walk through the Bible study with us. A lot of these young men are, are guys who um, are either in law school or med school or they're teachers, and this time slot just isn't, doesn't, they, they can't consistently be here. And so this provides them an opportunity. But I just wanted you to know you're having that kind of an impact on the next generation. Um, and sooner or later, they'll all get their, their acts together and they'll be in here on Thursday mornings. But, you know, that, that day will come down the line. As I was studying these two chapters, chapter 13 and 14 of 1 uh, Samuel, which we're going to be in today, there's one kind of main thought that's been dominating my thinking. And the thought has, has been this. It's really this contrast between being a good man and being God's man. And I think that's something that, it, that, is, a, that is a great danger uh, where we live. I, and I don't mean necessarily just America. I mean right here in Memphis. I think, and I, and I would say even right here in this room. I think there can be for us, um, you know, in, in the culture in which we're in right now, um, it is important to be a good man. <laughs> and, and most of us, you know, you, you came here this morning, you're at a Bible study that meets at 6.30 in the morning, I would say that probably all of you want to be good men. You want to be known as good men. You want to raise good sons and good daughters. You want to have good families. But there is a distinction, an important distinction, between simply being a good man and being God's man. And we're going to see this morning this contrast between two men. Uh, One man who I think honestly wanted to be a good man. And then someone who you're going to see this morning who is intending to be God's man. And you're going to see the differences that come out in that. Um, I know a lot of times we give uh, Saul a bad rap. It's easy, a lot of, easy for me. I haven't thought about this week. I'll read some of the things that Saul did and said, uh, the decisions he made in these two chapters. And I think, gosh, what an idiot. Like, how could he have not seen that this is a dumb idea? Um, and yet the more I got into it, the more I studied it, I thought, man, I can see myself doing these exact same things. Um, in fact, the, the real big problem in here, the one that, that takes the, uh, the kingdom away from Saul, as we're going to see here, that, that act that he does there, I, I can definitely see myself making the same decision that Saul made. And it's a decision that that's really boils down to wanting to be a good man as opposed to wanting to be God's man, and really understanding 
the distinction of that. And so we're going to look at uh, those two contrasts this morning. And rather than read all of the, uh, the chapter, uh, two chapters at once, I'm going to go ahead and read a part of 13, a part of 14 to give us kind of the context, and then we'll go ahead and, and dive in on these places. We'll start in, uh, in verse uh, 1 of uh, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, now just some of you are reading that sentence going, that doesn't make any sense, he's one year old when he became king. For some reason, the numbers were left out of the Hebrew, and there's a great debate that, that would probably bore all of us this morning to try to look at it. Basically, the, the, the general conclusion is um, that what had happened here is that, that Saul has, has reigned for one year, and he loses the kingdom, he loses the blessing within two years, even though he goes on to reign a little bit longer. Verse 2 says this, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Interesting, it was Jonathan, not Saul. But all Israel heard that Saul defeated um, the garrison. And also, Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and all the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Again, just to give you the context here, this is, this is somewhat of the instruction that was given in, to Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 10, chapter 10. We'll look at that in a little bit. He this garrison's defeated, call all the people to uh, Gilgal, they're supposed to wait there. Of course, the garrison being defeated, the Philistines are ticked off, and, and you know, the Israelites are a stench to them. Uh, as a result of that, the Philistines muster this very large army. Uh, as you see there in, in verse 5, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and they kind of converge onto Gilgal, and the people are freaking out. They're supposed to be there waiting for these sacrifices that Samuel's going to perform, and, and they're just scared. They're just frightened. And it says that they are uh, going ahead and they're hiding in rocks, um, hiding in caves. They're nervous about it. The people are trembling. All this is taking place uh, there. In verse 8, we picked it up. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. That's the instruction from, from chapter 10. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Paul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And it goes on at the end of this chapter to talk about the fact that Saul has 600 men with him, so it's gone from this 3,000-member army, he and Jonathan together, to just 600 men. We pick it up in, in uh, verse 14, excuse me, chapter 14. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. You know, see, they're here, uh, camped around him, this 30,000 uh, chariot army and 600 with Saul and Jonathan. Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing the ephod. It's very important that uh, the writer here of Samuel is pointing out, you have Saul who has lost the blessing of king, and the priest he has with him points out the priestly line has been, has been abolished. This is a son of, of, uh, of Eli, um, a son of Ichabod. Remember, we read this before, said this before, the glory being gone. And so you have no power here. Not, there's no presence of God here with Saul. Picking up again in verse, uh, in verse 3, And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. The crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And he goes on, Jonathan says, he goes on to say, We're going to wait for the sign from God. And if God gives us a sign, we're going to go up after them. And they do go up in there. And they end up, Jonathan ends up killing 20 there in kind of the, the, the band that's out there on the outpost waiting to see, and they freak out. The army freaks out. There's a, God causes this incredible panic. And you see there in verse 15, and there was a great panic in the camp, and in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and became a very great panic. So God, you know, he gives Jonathan success. Jonathan kills 20 men. They think this whole thing's going to blow up. They're running around. They end up, it says, and they're even starting to kill each other. They're, they're going back and forth. And they're not sure who's in charge or what's going on. The Israelites, the 600, hear about it. And they're like, oh my goodness, we got to, let's go. And then not only that, but the news gets out. And those who have, have abandoned Saul and Jonathan, they come there. And, there's, and the, great, uh, you know, the great rush is on. They are, they are going to pursue the Philistine army. And you see in... Um, Verse 22, it says, Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them. Verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. goes on in the rest of this chapter to talk about how Saul, again, making a foolish decision, makes this ridiculous vow. He says, 
listen, uh, I don't want anybody to eat anything. We got to press this army. We got to go after them. So no one's supposed to eat or drink anything. It's just, it's just dumb. You're like, what are you even thinking? And uh, as a result, he says, if anybody does, they're going to die. Anybody eats anything, they're going to die. Jonathan doesn't hear about this. And he's running along. And he's running through the forest. He goes by some honeycomb, sees this honey dripping out of the trees in the honeycomb, takes his, his staff, he dips it in the honey. He's eating the honey. It says his eyes become bright, which simply means he got energy again. You know, it's like eating, you know, like, like uh, you know, drinking a five-hour energy. He's just, all right, let's go. And, uh, and later on, they find out, you know, that Jonathan has done this. Everybody else is, is, is falling from weakness, and they can't press the Philistine army like they need to. And uh, when Saul finds out about it, instead of Saul thinking, you know, that was a dumb thing, I shouldn't have said that, he actually says, bring Jonathan to me, and uh, let's find out who's responsible for this. Jonathan ends up being the one who, who uh, is responsible, and Jonathan responds, well, here I am. You know, I'm, I'm ready to die, because I broke, I broke this vow. I didn't know about it, but I broke it, and, uh, and Saul was going to have him killed, and all the people right there go, what are you doing? This is the guy who has saved Israel. And they, it says they all ransomed him. <laughs> they all paid the price for him. They, they said, this isn't going to happen. And then it goes on in the end of the chapter to talk about, from there on out, Saul was always fighting the Philistines. And his strategy was whenever he saw a powerful man, he tried to align himself with that man. Because obviously and clearly he was a coward and he didn't have the blessing of God himself. And so you see here this contrast of these, of these two men of Saul, uh, who's supposed to be the leader, who is foolish, and his son Jonathan, who is, who is uh, who's being God's man. And so as you look at these things this morning, I want you to see, first of all, in, in uh, the first chapter, chapter 13, and this is uh, Roman numeral 1, a foolish man does not trust the Word of God. A foolish man does not trust the Word of God. Foolish in the Old Testament doesn't just mean uh, stupid doesn't just mean an idiot. Foolish means this is someone who uh, who doesn't think there's God. A uh, God. Psalm fourteen verse one says, "The fool says in his heart, there is no God." And I would say that all of us in this room, probably all of us in this room, were here, so we would say there is a God. The part where we end up being foolish is moments and times when we are uh, are we are working, interacting with our family, and we do things. We act in such a way as if there is no God. And that happens to all of us. When you and I sin, what we're really doing is we're living out a practical atheism. We're saying, for that moment, for that time, for that decision, God does not exist. And in those moments, we become foolish, like the Bible talks about foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And a foolish man does not trust the Word of God. And we see several things about this foolish man displayed by the life of Saul. We see, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, letter A, he lacks understanding and often compromises. He lacks understanding and he often compromises. Verse 3 says, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Samuel blew his trumpet. You look back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 5 through 8, you see those instructions given. And in those instructions... What, uh, what Samuel's told to do, in fact, let's go ahead and, and look at that, because I think it's important to see this. And this is 
coming from Samuel, and Samuel is the mouthpiece of God at the time. So this is God's word to Saul. And it says in verse 5 of chapter 10, Samuel says to Saul, After after that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, and there is a garrison of Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. That phrase, do what your hand finds you to do, in the Old Testament is a direct reference to military action. That's the same phrase that was used later on when, uh, when the armor bearer of Jonathan you know, when Jonathan says, hey, we're going to go up and attack them, and what does the armor bearer say? Do what your hand finds you to do. I'm with you. Uh, you see it in other places in the Old Testament. It refers to military action. What's inferred here is this. Hey, when, when God's Spirit comes upon you, and you know God's with you, you're supposed to be the one who defends the Israelites against the Philistines. You should take out that garrison. That's what's inferred there. And then after you take out this garrison, um, in verse uh, 8... Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and I show you what to do. And so you see here, Saul is given clear instructions to do this, and he kind of did it. (laughs) First of all, he didn't do it right away. And second of all, Jonathan is the one who did it, and then he takes credit for it. So it appears... To me, that there is a lack of understanding. In one sense, Saul is not clearly grasping the word of God. He's just sort of getting it. He's just sort of listening to it. And then as a result of that, he's compromising. He's not doing it himself. He's, you know, his son ends up doing it. Jonathan ends up doing it. And then he takes credit for it. And probably in his mind, as a good man, he's thinking, well, I've done it. I've, I've you know... I freelanced a little bit, but we're kind of at the same result, so now let's get everybody and we'll go to Gilgal, and we'll be there. But I've kind of done it. When you're attempting to be a good man instead of God's man, you're going to lack understanding, you're going to compromise. And it just reminds all of us that we must know the Word of God, and we must not compromise any place, the Word of God. Second thing we're going to see about this foolish man in verses 5-12, through letter B, is that he does not wait on the Lord. He does not wait on the Lord. I told you from the, earlier, I, can, I can't just relate to what Saul does in those verses, verses 5 through 12. I can see myself doing the exact same thing. I mean, think about this. You're the leader. You've got everybody to Gilgal. You've sort of followed what needed to happen. The results are the same. You got the same results. The garrison's wiped out. You've gathered all the people to Gilgal, and you're waiting seven days. It appears that maybe it was like 4 or 5 in the afternoon on the seventh day. So it's on the seventh day, but it's late. And uh, you've been waiting seven days. And while you've been waiting, there's this massive army of the Philistines that has started to move towards Michmash, where you are. The people are freaking out. They're starting to scatter. They're starting to go home. You're losing your army. You're waiting for Samuel to come to get the blessing of God going with this burnt offering and peace offering that you think are probably a good idea, but you don't know exactly what it is. You're waiting, you're waiting, and you're the leader. Everybody's looking at you. 
When are you going to act? When are you going to do something? And you're waiting and you're waiting. And you're like, well, I'm going to wait till that seventh day. It gets to that seventh day. It's lunchtime. No Samuel. And you start thinking. More people are scattering. I'm supposed to be the leader. I'm supposed to do something here. And so he does what I can see myself doing. All right, you know what? At 4 o'clock, we're doing the sacrifice. Don't know exactly how to do it, but I'm going to try to figure it out. You know? We'll, get the, we'll do what we're supposed to do because we've got to take care of this. And so he doesn't wait on the Lord. He doesn't wait for Samuel. And he goes ahead and he does the sacrifice. Samuel shows up and he says, uh, what, what are you doing? Why, why have you done this? Why didn't you wait? I think it's a great problem in all of our lives. Like I said, I know it's a huge problem in my life. Just waiting on the Lord, waiting for Him to do something. I know in uh, one of my favorite chapters, the probably most convicting chapter of the Bible for me, is in uh, Genesis 32. Um, if you sat under my teaching at all, you've heard me talk about this a lot because it, it, uh, it, has, uh, it has had a great impact on my life. At the beginning of Genesis 32, uh, Jacob is about to meet Esau for the first time after having ripped him off of the birthright years and years and years ago. Jacob is now an extremely wealthy man. And of course he's scared of meeting Esau, whom he ripped off. And it says at the beginning, the first eight verses, you see Jacob, whose name literally means schemer, and that's what he's been doing his whole life. He goes ahead and makes this plan, because he's scared. You know, he knows he's supposed to be meeting Esau. That's what God wants him to do. But he's nervous about it. So he makes this plan. And it seems like a pretty decent plan. He takes half of his wealth, half of the people in his family, half of the donkeys, camels. He says, you go on this side of the river. I'm only going to meet Esau with half of my stuff. So when he attacks me and destroys me, he doesn't destroy everything. He doesn't destroy my family. And and half the wealth will still be covered. And then in verse 9. And then... Jacob prayed to the Lord. <laughs> I think, God, oh, that, that is a story of Todd Erickson's life right there. You know, give me a problem and I will give you a plan like that. I love giving people plans. I love scheming and putting together. And then I'll go, oh, yeah, you know, I should probably pray. <laughs> that would be a good idea. Man, that's completely backwards. Completely backwards. And I'm so... Uh, uh, challenged by this, I, it, it is such a, a, a thing in my life. If you go into my office right now upstairs, there's this paper that everybody asks me about because it kind of looks goofy. Right above where my laptop computer goes, there's this paper that's just taped to the wall in big black letters that says, pray first. Because I literally need that reminder. And it's right by my phone. Because usually, you know, my phone's involved in making some plan, right? I look at that and be like, okay, before you pick up the phone, Todd, before you answer that email, Todd, wait on the Lord. Wait. Be patient. Let the Lord act. That's what was needed to happen here. And Saul didn't do that. He acted foolishly. Now you can see how he, I mean, it's not like he's rebellious. You can see he's trying to be a good leader. But he's not being God's leader. And the distinction is very important. The next thing we see in verses 13 and 15, is that this foolish man, he does not know the heart of God. He does not know the heart of God. Verse 14 says, uh, Saul, excuse me, Samuel says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart 
And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Clear instruction for all of us there is this. When, when you and I know the heart of God, we keep His commands. When we're not keeping His commands, we're not following the heart of God. We're not a man after God's own heart. And so that's what, that's, that's what we want to be. That's the distinction between being a good man and being God's man. And not only that, there's a great danger for all of us in our culture. Um, in fact, it's really Western culture in the last 50 years, maybe 100, that, uh, that has had this weird uh, division between knowledge and, and action. And it's very, it's very easy for us, it even fits our culture, to come to a Bible study like this every Thursday morning and to sit here and take notes. It's very easy for us to leave here and be informed, but not be transformed. And it's acceptable in our culture, but it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, you see it even in the, the, the old English of the, of the King James Bible. You know, every time they talk about a, a person having sexual relationships with another person, it says, and he knew her. That's because to know something was to be responsible for it was to act on it. And in almost every culture of the world, even today, outside of Western culture, that's, that's how they think. To know something is to act on it. It really is only in our culture that this, this division has taken place where we can accept being informed but not be transformed. What we see here is that the foolish man doesn't know the heart of God. He's, he's informed, but he's not transformed. He's not living a changed life when he walks out these doors. And lastly, we see in verses 16 through 23, letter D, he brings trouble to those around him. If you read those verses, we didn't read those verses, but uh, what takes place is, first of all, his, his army dwindles to 600. Um, these raiders come out from the Philistines, and they're raiding these different parts of the Israelite territory. Um, somehow... Somehow they get a hold of the little weapons that the Israelites have and take them. They won't sell the, the Israelites any weapons. Uh, and, and the Israelites actually still have to go to the Philistines just to get their, their plowing equipment sharpened. So by the time they, they gather at, at uh, Gilgal, nobody has any swords except for Jonathan and Saul. I mean, the whole thing is a disaster. And you see that, don't you, in, in, uh, in men... Who, um, who are leading foolishly, who are leading as if there is no God. And when you and I lead as if there is no God, then you're going to see things in your family eroding. When we lead as if there is no God, we think, see things in our city eroding. When we lead as if there is no God, we see sing, things in our nation eroding. And, uh, and it's important, and I would say this this morning, I certainly, like probably many of you, are frustrated about what is the, the rapid moral shift that is taking place in our country. When I say rapid, I mean, certainly it was rapid for the last decade. But boy, in the last 10 months, we've just gone to light speed on the things that are shifting. But the real answer for that doesn't begin in the voting booth. The real answer for that begins in our own hearts. We just need to be men of God. We need to be God's men. If this room, if just this room 
We're committed to be God's men and not just good men. The impact on the city would, would be unbelievable. The impact on families. It, it is when we choose to live foolishly, choose to live as if there is no God, when we make those kind of decisions and those kind of actions, when we just are good men and we're not God's men, that's when our families erode. That's when our city erodes. That's when our nation erodes. And so there is, in this example here of Saul, a clear picture of what happens by that, when that foolish man chooses to, to act on his own ideas rather than on God's ideas. Well, that's enough of that. I'm ready to get on to the good man, now the, God, the God's man. Um, so chapter 14, chapter 14, we're going to see Roman numeral 2, a godly man acts with faith. A godly man acts with faith. As you can clearly see as we go through this with the life of Jonathan, you see, and I love this, you see that Jonathan clearly is not just informed, but he's transformed. He doesn't just know stuff, he's living it. He's acting on it. And there are, there are, two, uh, there are two great verses here that, uh, that if you do any kind of underlining in your Bible, you're going to want to underline these verses. I'll tell you when we get to them. First of all, letter A, you're going to see in verses 1 through 5, this godly man, he possesses real courage. He possesses real courage. It says there, one day Jonathan, and the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, hey, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Let's see if we can do something. They're sitting here surrounded by 30,000 chariots. They have 600 men. Jonathan, without telling the Saul, anybody else, just his armor bearer, says, hey, let's go, let's go over there. And let's see, let's see what kind of damage we can do. And that just sounds ridiculous. But there's real courage there. Some of you know the name uh, Randy Pope. He's a pastor of Perimeter Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. He, Randy went to Perimeter, or went to found Perimeter some 30, 40 years ago. Went to the north side of Atlanta. Was going to plant a church there. And uh, had this vision, and it just sounded ridiculous. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, God has blessed it, and not only is Perimeter itself a very large and a great evangelistic and disciple-making church, but it has planted this satellite, these satellite churches that are great uh, hubs of evangelism and discipleship and really impacting the northern, uh, northeastern uh, part of Atlanta. Phenomenal work of God that's taken place there. But if you, had, if you had talked to Randy Pope in the beginning, you'd have thought he was nuts. But Randy has this thing that he says so many times, I've heard him say it in so many different contexts, he'll say this, attempt something so great for God that it is doomed to fail unless God is in it. Attempt something so great for God that it is doomed to fail unless God is in it. And man, that is what, <laughs> that is what Randy did. You would have heard it and you'd said, you can't do that. And he would have said, you're right, only God can do it. You know, Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, he that builds labors in vain. And so, when you are a godly man, you're going to possess real courage. Because it's going to just be in your heart and your mind to think, what is it that God needs to do in this city or needs to do in my family? Needs to do in my business? What is that thing that is so great 
that unless God does it, it'll be an absolute failure. That's courage. The second thing you see in this godly man displayed in Jonathan, in letter B, is this. He trusts the omnipotence of God. He trusts the omnipotence of God. As my father would, uh, would say, verse 6 of chapter 14 is worth the price of admission this morning. This is a verse you're going to want to underline. What's said in here is, is, uh, just, is just profound. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines, these 30,000. <laughs> Let's go over there. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. There's three things here that just jump out at you that are just so important for, for what it means to act as a godly man, to be a, a, someone who acts on faith, acts by faith. The first thing is that phrase, for nothing can hinder the Lord. There is a clear belief that Jonathan has in the power of God. Jonathan has a clear belief in the power of God. He trusts the omnipotence of... He knows God can do anything. Absolutely anything. And it's clear in that statement. The second thing you see is in what he says right at the beginning. It may be that the Lord will work for us. So though Jonathan has a clear belief in the power of God, the omnipotence of God, he doesn't think God owes it to him. He also has a clear understanding that God is sovereign and God has a will... And he needs to follow God's will. And that's a beautiful combination there. He doesn't doubt God's power for a second. He, know God, he knows God can do anything he wants. He also he knows that God is only going to do what he thinks is best. And so even as he acts in faith, Jonathan is saying, I know God can do anything. And it might be that he'll do this for us. Or we'll die. I mean, that's what's inferred there. It might work. It might fail. But, but I, I know God has power to do whatever he wants to do here. And the third thing you see in that phrase is the last part. Saving by many or by few. Jonathan has a clear acceptance in the way of God. So he has a clear trust in the power of God. Or a clear belief in the power of God. A clear trust in the will of God. And lastly, a clear trust and acceptance in the way of God. So however he wants to do it. You know, maybe we're going to die, but then, then the other people are going to come here. Or maybe we're all going to die today, but then maybe years from now something will happen. But you can see just, he clearly trusts the power of God. He's laying himself on the mercy of God. He's going to be God's man. That's his intention. And he knows God's going to do whatever God wants to do, and that's going to be best. And he doesn't need to worry about it. Profound verses there. A godly man acts in faith because he trusts the omnipotence of God. Next, in verses 16 through 23, you're going to see that the godly man acts in faith because he does the work of the Lord. He does the work of the Lord. Verse 23 is another verse you may want to underline. So after the battle has taken place and people are scattering, Jonathan has killed 20 people. They freak out. The ground is quaking because 30,000 people are trying to figure out what's going on. Philistines are killing Philistines. And uh, all of a sudden, people from the Israelites from around the area are coming. They're going to press this battle. (coughs) Everything is going right. (coughs) 
And at the end of the whole thing, it says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Beautiful. See, Jonathan had attempted something so great for God that it was doomed to fail unless God was in it. And when it succeeded, it was clear God was in it. God saved Israel. Jonathan didn't save Israel. But Jonathan got to do the work of the Lord. See, when you're a good man, you're just going to do good things. When you're God's man, you're going to get to do the work of the Lord. It's going to be his work. He's going to be the one that acts. But he uses you. He uses me. You see this through, throughout the whole, <laughs> the whole Bible. And when you look at the New Testament, uh, we're, we're preaching, Sandy on Sunday morning is preaching through the Gospel of John, and you know it took us like, I don't know, 15 weeks to get through the first chapter. <laughs> but it's a chapter just packed full of things. And I got the opportunity, I guess middle, late August, to preach on verses right there in the middle, I think it's verses 6 through 9 of, uh, of, of John chapter 1. And there's this great thing where it's talking about that, that, that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then it moves on after the verses I had to preach on to this part about, um, you know, uh, He came in the flesh, uh, He was God in the flesh, He dwelt among us, and we've heard His voice. And it, and it seems to fit great together, except for the verses that I had to preach are these verses about John the Baptist. It just all of a sudden seems to interject and there was this man sent from God, and he got to be bear witness to the light. And when you read it in John chapter 1, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like those verses should have gone down here. And clearly what I think is happening there, and John Piper brings this out uh, when he writes on John chapter 1. John wanted to make it very clear that it was God's intention that this message of the gospel would be brought through men sent from God, through women sent from God which honestly seems like a dumb idea to me. <laughs> I know me. I'm not a good evangelist. The thought that it would be better, wouldn't it just be better if God just, you know, spoke in an audible voice over the city of Memphis today? I am God. Jesus is my son. Believe in him and you shall live. That would solve a lot, it seems. Instead, God's plan is to send all of us out to, be, to bear witness to him. And I'm thinking of those two plans and going, huh. But that's God's plan. God wants to have you and I do the work of the Lord. And that's, and that's why we need to be God's men in this city, in our families. Because he wants the message to come through you. You know that the ministry of Jesus lasted three years. Three years. Our pastor, if you're at another church, probably your pastor has been at your church longer than that. It didn't seem like a good idea, and yet that's God's idea. I'm going to use men and women to be my messengers. I'm going to use men and women to do my work. What a, what a gift. What a blessing. You're being sent out of this room today to bear witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're being sent out of here to make disciples. What a privilege. What a, what a, how great that should make you feel. What an honor. How it should elevate you above any title that you have. That you are a, a witness to the light. That you bear witness to the light. When we act as godly men, acting in faith, we get to do the work of the Lord. And then we see in verses 24 through 44, 
that the godly man acts in faith and he possesses wisdom and humility. Wisdom and humility. Jonathan, you know, you see in these big sections, and it's interesting to read. I just don't want to take up too much time reading it this morning, but, uh, you know, they're pressing the Philistines. Everybody's pressing them. It's just the way warfare was done back then. You're going to finish them off. And Saul, again, you're like, this is, I, this is the thing I wouldn't have done, I mean, because I like to eat. But Saul makes this vow, says, hey, nobody should eat, nobody should drink until we wipe the Philistines out. Well, that's, I mean, that's some hefty work. You're running with armor, you're killing people, fighting, running some more. <laughs> you got to eat. And, what, you know, and what, I guess he's worried that maybe they'd stop and eat too long. I don't know what, their deal, what his deal was. Of course, Jonathan doesn't, doesn't uh, he doesn't know it, but Jonathan just being God's man is going to just naturally have wisdom. So he didn't hear the thing, but when he saw food, he's like, I'm going to have some food. And then when somebody says, you know, hey, what are you doing? And he's thinking, boy, the rest of you should be eating as well. As a result of that, he says, oh, my father has done the wrong thing. He clearly sees it, like right just like that. And when you are somebody who knows God's word, you're going to have wisdom. In fact, that's one of those, that's one of those prayers that when you pray that, God will give that to you. It says clearly in James, when you pray for wisdom and you ask and you do it without doubting, God will answer your prayers. He will give you wisdom. As you seek to be a, a, a man of God who knows God's word, when you say, Lord, give me wisdom in these matters, and you have a willingness to wait to receive it, God will give you wisdom. So you see the wisdom of Jonathan there as God's man. And then you see the humility. Okay, he, he clearly believes, he says it. My father has, has brought a hardship on Israel. And then when it turns out he's the guy who broke the vow, he steps forward and he says, all right, I'm here. I, I should die. He has saved Israel. He has acted as God's man. And yet you still... Even under, you know, terrible authority, a terrible decision by the king, he still says, you know what, I'm going to act under authority. I'm, going to, I'm here, I should, I should die. And there's a humility. There's not this attitude of, I did it, I'm smarter than you, I'm wiser than you. But as God's man, he's just trusting God. And he, follow, he, he puts himself under that authority. Now, it's beautiful what happens. <laughs> In verses 45 through 52, we see that he is protected by God. He is protected by God. Verse 45, the people said to Saul, So Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head to fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Jonathan did not die that day. Jonathan will die. Jonathan will die in battle. But Jonathan did not die that day. There are these great verses in uh, Psalm 31. Psalm 31 verses 14 and 15 say this. I will trust in the Lord. You are my God. My times are in your hand. My times are in your hand. There is nothing that can happen to any of us outside the bounds of what God wants. And so you and I can live fearlessly. 
The Lord will protect you as long as He intends to protect you. You're going to live as long as God wants you to. And not any, lo- any longer. <laughs> and that might be today. Or that, yeah. <laughs> or that might be... That might be 30 or 50 years from now. But God has his t- your time in His hand. And He's going to protect you until it's time to bring you home. And you'll get that reward. The reward for being God's man. And so, in that knowledge, you have a freedom. I have a freedom to act in faith. If I know the Lord's going to protect me, if I know th- that my times are in His hand, I don't, I don't need to worry and fear. I can act in faith with freedom. Because He's got me. And when it's time for me to go, it'll be time for me to go. I would conclude this morning with this thought as we thought about these two men. Will you, will you walk out of this room this morning and simply be a good man who's gone to a 6.30 Bible study? Or... Or will we walk out of this room and be godly men who have been transformed by the word and who are ready to act in faith? Which type of men will we be when we walk out of this room this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beauty and the power of your word. I thank you, Father, that it is not simply a book of of practical sayings book of religious principles, but that it is the story of your redemptive work using men, using women, using human beings to do your work of redemption, even broken and fallen human beings. So Father, we thank you for what we have read this morning, Lord, for how you have informed us. And now by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would transform us. Lord, keep us from just simply being good men and sanctify us to be your men. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.